Okay, episode number. <laughs> Any idea? Not a clue. 27? This is where we have to look up our own website to see what number we're on. <laughs> yes, it's 27. Yay, okay, cool. Welcome to the Creative Coding Podcast, episode number 27, with me, Ian Lobb. And me, Seb Lee Delisle. That was a very dramatic intro. It was, I know. I liked it. Be aggressive. <laughs> be aggressive. Yes, I'm it's just... You're, you're being assertive. I'm taking a more assertive tone What's What's episode. coming up on the show today, Ian? <laughs> we have an interview with Zach Lieberman, creator of Open Frameworks, or one of the creators. One of, one of them. And some general catching up. Loads of catching up. Oh, my God. When was... that? You know, we've, it's been a month again, Ian. Should we just say it's a monthly podcast? Or, I, think we, I think we've pretty much gone monthly, haven't we? I think I, we should probably so. just admit it. Yeah. It was awesome that we could do it every two weeks when we started, but I just I think that's very hard to maintain, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. Although I do find that I have so much to say. It's yeah. like, you know, that's quite hard. Um, mm. You know, I, it's like whenever we record now, I'm like, oh, I've got to talk about this and I've got to do this. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a catch-22 though, isn't it? Because it's like the more busy we are, obviously, the more things there are to talk about, but then the less time we have <laughs> to do yeah. the show. And it's the editing of the show, really, that is that takes time, not the recording. Yeah, it sucks to be us. <laughs> Even though we don't edit out a huge amount, we kind of just... It still takes a while, doesn't it? We just don't spend a lot of time just improving the flow of it, I guess, and yeah, it does take yeah. time. Yeah, it takes, you know, it doesn't just come together magically, it's a lot of, a lot of effort. Yeah, and I mean, we did have an editor, Jack Menhorn, who has done an awesome job, but he has now left us. Oh. <laughs> so... He's, want... he's too busy as well, isn't he? Yeah, he's doing something else, another podcast. He was, and he was so good. I miss him. He was him. very good. We haven't even had to edit our own one yet, and already I miss him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I edited the one where I went to San Francisco, and it just took me ages. It took me so long. Yeah, it definitely gets faster, but it's still a bit of a pain. All right, so what have you done since July the 12th? Um, okay, so I finished up freelancing in London. That was good fun, and I made some money. And so now I'm back in Cornwall, enjoying mm-hmm. the good weather um, and having a nice little holiday, and just poking around the edges of Super Gun Kids. Yeah. And trying to get back into that. Uh-huh. Mostly level design now, so that's the big thing. Although yeah, level design is the mo- the thing. Level design and kind of enemy behaviour are the two kind of things. So like your character is pretty much sorted. That all works. So it's now like okay, what what do you do so you run around the levels I've got to make the levels and then you encounter these enemies and I've got to make the enemies so that's two kind of different things the level design is quite a painstaking process of moving some things around testing it making sure that it's interesting making sure you can't walk through the floor and everything yeah so then so for level design I mean there's a mixture of creative things it's like you have to decide kind of what, what what's the concept for the level you know like what's the challenge or what's the puzzle that you need to solve or what's the the skill element and then there's also just a really boring kind of technical thing of making sure yeah you can't fall through the floor or anything like that so <laughs> That's yeah, level design. Tough. And then the enemy behaviour stuff is kind of some quite hardcore AI programming, which I thought was more done than it is, basically. So I'm having to rewrite my pathfinding system a bit. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that, that's something that's possibly 
people might want to hear about. So basically, what I did have was this kind of node-based system, right, where you're... So imagine how A star works in, in 2D. You've got, say, a grid, right? And yeah. to plot a point from one place to another place, it's just which squares do you go through, right? Mm-hmm. So my initial idea for to kind of turn this into a platform game thing was I've got all these nodes placed around the level, and they're the equivalent to the grid squares, and you kind of ping them off, so imagine them lighting up as you go around, and each time you light one up, yeah. you know which one to go to next, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is, say that they're chasing a player, um, say it's an enemy and, he's chas- and they're chasing a player, and yeah. they've got to say the same platform as the player, right? So yeah. they hit one node just so they're in front of the player, but then the player moves behind them, right? So now they like they don't they have to repathfind to the player even though the player's on the same platform. Yeah. That they sounds complicated. Have to, they have to sounds kind of like go and light light up a node and then go back and then they can go to the player, if that makes sense. Cause, so basically, it, it makes it hard for them to know whether they're on a platform and things like that, because yeah. or if they're on well, the same so platform as does, the player. Do, do the enemies have the same sort of physics model as the player? Yeah, exactly And they're the just same. being controlled by AI? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. so, so basically, the, the problem is when I want them to move, say, just a short distance, and it's on the same platform as the player, um, yeah. I want them to do it without having to like go, th- go back and go through a node, and then if that makes sense. So what the way I've changed it is very subtle. Is mostly the same, except you can now be kind of on a platform or kind of in a zone, which is basically if you're if the player is in between two nodes that are on a platform, yeah, they're in a kind of zone, and within that zone they know that they can kind of move freely, right? Yeah. So and doing it this way, it becomes a lot easier, basically. The, so it uses they, the they pathfinder to get them nearby, and then it just yeah. uses simpler stuff when they're really close. You can basically you draw a line between two nodes, and it's that it's the line between the two nodes. If they're kind of stood on that line, then that's a kind of area basically that they can move freely in. I just when I did this, when I solved this problem, I just made it really simple. It's like just if the if the player was on the left of the enemy, then the enemy would move left, and if it was on the right, then it would move right. And when there were sort of multiple vertical levels, um, you know, if if the player was underneath, then it would sort of move, keep moving until it found some some way of moving up or down, and just go down. And I've I've committed some horrible sins where if like the enemies were off the screen. Uh, right. They could cheat. And they could go really fast, and they could go through walls right, and right. stuff. You know, but it was sure. so easy. It was like ridiculous in the end. Yeah, it I sounds mean, like you've you got can a bit do more it. of an engineering solution there. It sounds really. I guess it's just that that works. Like that that is their basic behavior when they know they're close to the player. Yeah. But the problem is, what happens if that walks them out of the pathfinding system? Basically. Uh, yeah. I can't explain this properly. What have you been up to, sir? <laughs> Oh man, I've done so much stuff. Been to Japan. Oh yeah, how was that? That was cool. Japan's amazing. They have amazing stuff, and it's all everyone's nice. So that cool. was good. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've, I've been working really hard on the fireworks display that I'm making. You know, the digital mm. fireworks show. It's now called Pixel Pyros, yeah. and oh man, it's been so hard. <laughs> Just, well, the good news is I got my Arts Council funding through. So I'm yeah, now that's officially great news. funded by the Arts Council. So I, I don't know, I, I feel a bit more comfortable about calling myself an artist these days. 
<laughs> you get you can now stick a logo on your website forever. Can, I've like. got a logo. It's it's all it's awesome. Definitely, you know, credible now. Um, <laughs> but there have been some horrible logistical nightmares. I mean, this project is really complicated in mm. terms of where it is and the buildings that we're using and all this kind of stuff. So, like last week, we had this bombshell. Like three weeks to go, and the library. Um, told us that we well we were going to put this low tack vinyl on their glass to project right. onto which is such a smart yep. solution it's quite expensive but it's really smart it's like non-invasive it's like it's like post-it notes stuff so it doesn't right. leave a residue yeah. it's just you know it's just amazing um and we and we thought that, well the people that run the building at the library they said that they were okay with it but they basically waited to ask the rest of the library last week <laughs> <laughs> and the library didn't want us to do it so it's like okay so with three weeks to go we were like oh my god what are we gonna do so it was really scary and really stressful i'm still not really over the trauma of it they're always okay with us like um using a, a screen so they were like yeah just hook up a screen to the the front that's fine you know and i think they just thought it would be like a sheet and a couple of ropes or whatever but yeah you know when you've got a 21 meter wide screen it's like it's pretty serious and and it yeah. needs to be it needs to be tied down and we would have had to have um you know pulleys and ropes and chains and I think the chances of damaging the library were just, well, I, I mean, I'm sure we could have done it, but it just was a bit of a worry and would require a risk assessment and health and safety studies and, and professional rigors with three-point harnesses, which we've got anyway, to be honest. But um, we just thought, well, I'm not going to go through all that again just for the library to change their mind at the last minute. So instead, we're just installing like a freestanding screen in front of the library right it's still it's still 21 meters wide and 16 meters high or at least i hope it is we haven't actually got the screen made yet (laughs) so and it's like less than two weeks to go well this is our our sound company who are kind of good at rigging and and they have riggers and and all of this stuff they come up with this really clever idea which is to use a couple of scissor lifts you know the things that lift people up to fix like street lamps and stuff like cherry pickers like a cherry picker but they're they're sort of like um you know the the extendable the joke shop extendable hands with the sort of scissor <laughs> action. Do you know what I mean? Like the right, sort yes, of yes, yes. Um, it's it's yeah. like that, but massive. You know, like these right. things are six tons each, and and so basically, um, we we just fix a, a either scaffolding poles or a lighting um, gantry between the two mm-hmm. scissor lifts yep. and raise them up together. But, you know, of course, like working this solution out has just been crazy. And we weren't sure if we'd still be able to use the building. We were looking at other buildings, which, oh, my God, it was so, so scary. And, of course, all the time I should be concentrating on the coding side, which also is like loads of work. You know, and I'm a little, I think I'm okay now, but there was some a few points where, I mean, it's it's still an awful lot of work for me to do in the sort of week and a half that I have left. Um, But I touch wood, I think I'm going to be all right. Certainly a couple of weeks ago, I was a bit more scared, but I seem to be there now. Yeah, so I'm feeling, you've caught me on a good day when I'm feeling quite excited (laughs) about it. (laughs) But last week, if you caught me last week, I would have just been swearing and (laughs) really scared and and terrified you know it's it's just such a responsibility because everyone is supporting this project you know like yeah. the digital festival all the really cool people involved in the festival and yeah. all the top art um uh 
supporters in Brighton, they're all behind me, you know, which is a brilliant feeling. Um, yeah. And people at the council are really behind me. And then it's, I don't know, it's really, really cool. But then, of course, I've got a huge pressure on myself to, to make it good. Mm. It's it's quite, but I've got, I think I've got most of it. So it's, it's I'm using infrared, yeah? So right. behind the bottom section of the screen, I've got a load of infrared lights. And they're essentially just ordinary lights, but with a few ordinary lighting gels on. So mm-hmm. if you, I haven't tried this out yet, but I've been assured by people like Golan Levin and Theodore Watson that this is the right way of doing it, which is to put a few um, sheets of like blue gel Yep. on the light and maybe one red as well just for luck so put a few sheets on um, and most of the visible light is filtered out but the infrared light will still come through right so if we light if we backlight the bottom of the screen with all of these lamps i just bought a load of quite big clip-on lamps um, right and so we're going to put those along the bottom section so if you imagine in the infrared camera it's going to look yep. like that bottom section is backlit um but of course in normal visible light to the human eye you're not going to be able to see that at all um, right the critical thing is that in the infrared camera um you won't be able to see what's projected so the things that i'm projecting won't trigger motion so i've got these little areas of light these little orbs of light that i'm projecting on um uh-huh. in the infrared camera it won't see it or just see the backlit light um in yep. infrared and when someone moves their arm across that orb of light i'm going to see them as like a silhouette in the camera so and i'm just doing simple difference blending motion detection at the moment to work out where the motion is and whether that area has had movement in it so it's, uh-huh. it's pretty simple um it's not that hard i mean there's a bit of complete complexity in that i have to map the projected area in other words what my computer is on what's on my computer screen or what's going to the projector Uh, i have to map Mm -hmm. that area onto the area that my camera sees so that when i'm looking for motion at a particular position where the orb is i need to know where that position is in my camera yeah do you know what i mean so there's some sort of quite complex warping going on there but as it goes like in terms of computer vision it's kind of like you know it's one of the simpler sort of one of the first things you probably learn but um i found that you know the actual the actual stuff of this project like that for example like the difference blending like the particles like the fireworks like everything i find all of that stuff pretty easy but what i find really really hard is the architecture and just Uh making sure that that is neat you know if you think about the number of different well this time is a bit different from the last time because I want lots of different types of fireworks and maybe like I'm, I'm hoping to have maybe five or six different scenes that have different themes and different music and different sound effects you know sure. just setting up all of that data and the communication between all the various parts and um, you know I'm, I'm always quite perfectionist about how that's done you know what it's like right if you get the architecture wrong you just end up with unmaintainable uneditable buggy code right yeah so I always I put a lot of pressure on myself to get that right up front and I think I'm doing okay um and are you are you open sourcing all the code as you go still? Yeah, yeah, it's all there on my GitHub still. I, and I have you got a lot of watches? Of people paying attention I don't know, to I have it. A look. I think there was about twenty last time I looked. All right, that's quite a lot. Let's have a look. Oh, wrong one. Looking at Pixel phones. Uh, Pixel Pro. There's nineteen watches. So I don't know cool. if anyone's like doing anything with it <laughs> i mean it doesn't really work yet so <laughs> they're not going no. to they're not going to really um 
get well you know they're going to see the so the you're you're making this with open stuff. frameworks yeah and how do you find using c++ to do creative coding well it's been really hard actually but it's been a really good learning process i guess this you know i did pixel phones with with c++ and open frameworks yeah. so i've been doing it now for well probably a couple of years actually my first open frameworks was a while ago yeah but doing this as it's a very different type of project than i've been doing before and I, and i've wanted to do it a bit better than my other projects so there's been loads loads of stuff that i've learned actually so it's it's mm. getting a bit easier, and I feel like I'm starting to be a bit more comfortable with with uh, C++ and Open Framework. So I mean, if you if but you say like from, for someone say coming from like JavaScript or Flash, what would be the main kind of differences? Um, well, I mean, it's it's very low level, right? Is the main thing I think. So you have to understand a bit about what's going on in the computer, and there are also some important things that you have to understand. I mean, of course, the big one everyone always says is memory allocation. Right. You know, and that's that's kind of important but it's not just that it's it's kind of like if um say you have an object in javascript or action script um and you set another object to equal that object well yeah. in those languages objects are always references right so yeah. you'll just have two references to the same object yeah c++ works very differently to that it will create a copy of that object um, right. if, you, if you just do that unless you specifically create a reference so there is like a reference object as well which is equivalent to sort of references in javascript and action scripts but sure. references are quite fiddly to work with in c++ because you can't create one without assigning it so right. if you've got like a reference that's a member of an object that that's can be fiddly to set up because you have to initialize it in the constructor or what, and what do you can't you just set it to be null and then put, give it a value no later? no that's the thing about c++ references is that they can't be null they have to be initialized uh in c++ you've also got pointers and they can be yeah. null um right pointers uh, can be difficult to work with because if you don't set up your pointers properly then um then you get memory allocation and memory leaks uh, memory because a pointer problems. a pointer points to like a memory location rather than yeah. a an object or mm. am I talking rubbish but it has a type as well so it knows what type it is oh it does yeah, have a type yeah literally just points to that memory location so there's there's been loads and loads of stuff like that um, that I've had to properly get my head around yeah um, you know like and, and especially if you're using polymorphism you know like I've got I've got a base particle class so then I have a vector of particles but I might be putting uh, subclasses of particle in that vector you know how do you do that and Vectors are weird because if you put an object, if you have a vector of objects and you put an object in there, it makes a copy of that object. So right. if you have if you have a vector and you want to make sure that you put in the object that you're creating at that time, well, you know, there's different ways to do that. But um, I've been using pointers, so I don't know, just getting my head around the best ways of doing things like that, and also polymorphism, mm. and also there's there's like problems with um, circular references as well. So right. this has really got me lately. I think I've got a solution, but it's it's just the sort of thing that you th that because they're patterns that I'm very used to doing. It's like oh yeah, I'll just make one of these or whatever, and and I'll I'll put it in, and it doesn't work. It doesn't compile. I'll give you an example where um, I have a particle object, and I wanted to have um, 
I wanted to make it kind of like the Unity 3D model. I don't know if you've ever used the particle systems in Unity, but they're really uh, smart. Yeah, briefly. And they have like a, a, a collection of modifiers that do various different things to the particle, and they're all optional. So you can just add a modifier that changes its color, or you can add a modifier that, um, I don't know, that alters its lifetime or gives it random velocity or whatever. There are all these modifiers mm -hmm. that you add into this object. So I wanted to create right. a system like that. But the problem was, so I'd make a particle and I'd have a modifier object or a base modifier class in there. But the modifier usually would need a reference to a particle because otherwise, because it needs to know what properties of the particle, it needs access to that particle's properties to change stuff, right? Sure. You can't have a particle with a, a property of a modifier, a base modifier, and then have the base modifier have a property that's the particle. You just can't do that. The compiler gets confused. Um, so it's, it's been stuff like that that's been a real huge pain. I mean, I think <laughs> I've got the idea now. I think what, what's probably a good thing to do in that situation is have a base particle class that doesn't have any modifiers and then give the modifiers a you know a property that's that base class and then extend the particles base class and make a particle that has modifiers on top of that yeah so that the the modifier doesn't know about this extended class it only knows about the base particle and i think that would be okay so that it's just stuff like that because I'm used to doing these patterns so frequently in other languages, it's taken a long time for me to adapt to this new way of working. Um, and, and I think I'm probably on a little bit on the side of... Um, what's his name? What's the cinder guy? Bell. Andrew Bell. I think I'm on the side of Andrew Bell who says, if you're an artist and you've just done a bit of like basic coding, you know, C++ isn't necessarily for you. <laughs> you know, mm. um, there's certainly a lot of investment that I've had to do to, to get up to speed on it. And, you know, so I, I would advise caution and probably, you know, suggest processing uh, if you, you know, if you hadn't done much that sort of computer science study before if you're up for it you know totally do it um if you're up for the challenge then totally go for it um it can be very difficult to get reference and i mean there's the other problem is because you know if you ever try and look something up online you just get a million references to lots and lots of different things because c plus plus has been around for a long time and there's still um a sort of underlying c in there as well so sometimes yeah. you'll look for solutions and get c style solutions which is right. complicated That's and then of course want. yeah and then of course there's like open frameworks as well and all the various objects in there and although they're doing a lot better these days and they've got some really good examples in there the documentation is pretty sporadic um sure. you know like and you'll you'll do something like have an object like say a color object and you'll just be like well what what are the ranges of parameters here it'll be like color rgb and you know how in javascript and action script well javascript's terrible it can be anything it can be like percentage or floating point or for sure. hsb it goes from zero to 360 um and, and in open frameworks, I think it's all zero to two five five. But just finding out that stuff is quite hard, you know. So is it not? Is there not? Is it not built into the? Is there not document? Is there not documentation in the source code? Not always, you know. Like I'll navigate to that that constructor, and it won't necessarily have the ranges in there. You know. So that's really annoying because what you want is like the nice inline method, the line, the documentation like in line with the signature yeah. method thing. 
right? Yeah, I definitely feel so like... You, yeah, yeah so I, so I feel there, like right? they've got a little way to go. Plus, I imagine. Yeah, you can put comments in anything, can't you? So um, sometimes it's tricky when, um, you know, some objects are defined as base classes and then have lots of various subclasses for that. So like you've got a, a video player, for example, and that, that would sort of extend the base video player, but actually you're not using the base. The base hasn't really got anything in it. Right. You're using like the QuickTime video player or something like that. So you'll navigate to okay. the, these is this, methods. This is stuff and you'll get within the, the base class. within the Open Frameworks examples. Uh, well, this is just working with Open Frameworks in general. I mean, I think right. that they. But I mean, for, well, for example, why would you ever need to use? Why would you ever need to extend something that then you don't? You're not actually using the base class. Oh well, you know, you often have you often have base classes without any implementation in, don't you? Uh, you shouldn't. And, that should be an interface. Yeah, well, there isn't. I don't think there is an interface as such in C. So this would be the equivalent of an interface. Right. Okay. So yeah, stuff like that. That's it's been um, okay. it's been quite tough. But I've had some. You know what? I've um, I've been working with Carl McDonald on this. He's been a consultant on the project, and right. we've just had like weekly calls, and it's been so invaluable. You know, mm. if you ever want to do an open frameworks project, then just hire someone like that to, to <laughs> just be your advisor. Um, it's it's been hugely beneficial, and um, I've learned so much from Carl. It's been it's been amazing. So yeah, it's um I feel like I'm getting there now. Um but it's been yeah, the code side has been difficult. Um but I'm quite pleased with it now. It seems to be okay and it's not too messy. I mean it could definitely be tidied up a bit, but it's not too messy. Particle stuff is fun anyway, isn't it? It's always fun. It always it always fun. Yeah. Should we go into the interview then? Yeah. Let's do that. So I suppose it's sort of relevant as well, isn't it? Really? It is. Um, but yeah, so I caught up with Zach Lieberman, who's a super nice guy, actually, and one of the founders of Open Frameworks. And I caught up with him in Britain. It was actually in the Britain Bridge Park. So that's why you hear, um, I don't know, it's various background noises. That's what Britain Bridge Park sounds like on a nice sunny day. <laughs> um but yeah, uh, Zach's, a, a, you know, a, a, he's at Parsons, but he's also a digital artist in his own right. I saw some of his work at the, uh, you know, at the IO Festival. He, he did some of some of his old performances. Uh, I think he mentions one of the projects. We'll maybe talk a bit more about that afterwards. But yeah, anyway, I started off by asking Zach, Zach how exactly the Open Frameworks projects got started. I was a student at Parsons, and I graduated in 2002, and my professor at the time, Golan Levin, invited me to come and work with him, and we went off to Ars Electronica, we worked on some projects, and we did, you know, some performances and installations and some stuff, and, and um, Golan introduced me to C++, and at that time we were using a library called ACU, which was a... Uh, library that was developed at MIT under the Aesthetics and Computation Group. And it was really sort of like kind of around the 2000 era. So it was like yeah. SGI, you know, designed for SGI machines. And, and um, you know, there was a Windows port of it that I think we were using. But, you know, I, where, where Open Frameworks comes in is that I, I was teaching. And I wanted to show my students how to make the same kind of projects that I was making. Yeah. And, and this tool was not the ACU was not open source. And in some way also ACU is the precursor to processing, that a lot of the ideas and kind of philosophy and, and code and, and thought that goes into that library went into processing. So you could say that open frameworks and processing have some 
you know, like shared. Shared heritage. Shared heritage. So around 2004, 2005, it was developed as a tool for, for students. And I remember a lot of kind of arguments within the department and trying to convince my bosses that, you know, stu- art students would want to use C++. And, you know, but as soon as people got into it, they started making great, really great projects. So Theo was one of my students who made a great... Um, his thesis project was called Audio Spaces, which was a 3D audio visualization tool. And Evan Roth was doing the graffiti analysis work, and Chris Grew, And there just was like such a great group of students that were coming up that were doing interesting work with this tool. That that that's really how it got started. And Theo joined, you know, joined joined with me to work on it after he graduated and helped with the Macintosh side, and then. Arturo came on to help with the Linux side, and I think we had a first kind of official, more official-ish re- release around 2007. What was your motivation for working in C++? I mean, so much of the work that that we do is around, yeah. you know, signal analysis, computer vision, processing audio, you know, generating audio. A lot of it is like requires very low latency and high speed and so the, some of those tools are just not there or were not there at the time you know well, I presume you were using processing as well at the time you know you processing just... like not in 2004 I guess it's I, it, still pretty young then wasn't yeah it? It was. I remember using a very early version yeah. of processing which was called bagel bagel which, if you ever meet anybody that like you know hacked on bagel then you know they're early processing <laughs> users that was the code name yeah and uh and I remember Bagel, like, from back in the day, you know. But, um, but again, you couldn't do video stuff with Java yeah. at that time. I remember working with QuickTime for Java, which was Apple's Java, you know, their, their API for that. And it just was really hard to do stuff. Yeah. Do you only work in open frameworks now? No, I mean, I, you know, I'm doing stuff in all kinds of languages. So right now I'm writing a lot of Python code for this... Um, for this project and for the Olympics, and uh, it's a lot of C for this kind of embedded devices. And but I'm really, you know, I like it, and I like working in C plus plus. And for me, it's like really, it's fast and does does what I want to do. How do you teach students C plus plus who have never done any programming before? I mean, one of the th- the joys of C plus plus is that you're re- it's really low level, yeah. so you're talking about. You know, how does the machine work? Yeah. And how does this code get interpreted into something that the machine can operate on? Yeah. And the fact that you can work at a really low level and talk about memory and talk about kind of how, how these things yeah. function, then I, I think you have a better understanding of the machine. Sure. You know, it's, I, it would be really hard with a language like, you know, that's full of, you know, variables that are like, you know, the type of the variable changes sort of automatically based on how you're using it and these high level languages are great and really like you know full of all kinds of beautiful you know syntactic sugar and so on but they're like it's not they're not great tools for teaching what the computer is about fundamentally what it's actually doing at the, at the low level and I guess yeah. as computers and the software and the operating systems get more uh, sophisticated we, we see less of that low level stuff don't we yeah, but I, I, on the flip side, as we get into these devices like our phones and the things that we're, you know, we're carrying around with us, which are, you know, they're like computers from five years ago. We have to be writing native code. I mean, we, we don't have to, but, you know, if you want to do stuff that's like, you know, operating quickly, you, you, you 
you are writing native code. Even the people on Android, when they want to make games and they want to make stuff which is fast, they're writing with the NDK, you know, because it's fat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. So, Open Frameworks is like 007 now, right? That's the yeah. latest, most recent I think we're on like 071. I mean, how much of your time is involved with updating that project? I mean, does it take a lot of work to keep it's still, it going? You know, it still takes a lot of work in terms of releases. Like, yeah. when we go to make a release, it's just always a lot of testing. Um, we are trying to get faster and faster release cycles. So now we are aiming for a sort of every two months to have a release, you know, re- release that we make. And the releases could either be sort of larger scale things or smaller scale things. And, and that, I, I think if we have a faster release cycle, it's better for everybody. So if someone wanted to learn Open Frameworks yeah. uh, and C++, I mean, apart from coming to do your program, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what other options are there? What's the good options? Yeah, so there are... Um, you know, there there's no like one book for open frameworks, which yeah. is a problem, and that's something that you know, I hear. There's one in Japanese. There's a great book in Japanese. <laughs> Japan has, has the market cornered on the the. But there are, um, I think there are books in the pipeline, and, sure. and um, you know, there's obviously Joshua Noble's book, which is is a, a good introduction to open frameworks as well as processing and, and Arduino. There are a bunch of tutorials that exist on our website, and there's a few other websites like OF Tutorials. And I'll send you some links. I have a contract for a book. I just haven't had time to write the book. But I, when, when I interviewed yeah. Dan, he was like, "Yeah, I promised the book's gonna come out by like December, and that was last year." So uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can, we, can I pin you to a particular schedule? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I've like, learned my lesson. So. Yeah. No, but I but I really want to do it in something that that's I think really important yeah. and missing from the project. Um, but ways to learn is to um, you know to jump on the forum to get involved. Like one of the best things about Open Frameworks is the community. It's a group of people. So more than code, more than you know examples and and so on. There's people that are very very generous with their time and. You know, I used to spend all my time on the forum answering questions. I remember, like, going on trips where I would stop in, like, an airport where I'm changing airplanes, and I would, like, jump on the forum and (laughs) answer a few posts and then jump on another plane. Um, And now it's, like, it's like a, um, you know, it's a locomotive. Like, it's just got its own, own, you know, um, momentum, and there's people that are jumping in and spending a lot of time helping. Yeah. So I would say... You know, um, j- you know, jump in, download it, get on the forum. If there's workshops, that's always really, you know, workshops in your area or meetups or something like that, that's always a really good place to get started. Yeah, I mean, I certainly found it quite daunting yeah. when I started. And uh, it's not just, I mean, I guess I'd done C in the past, right? So yeah. I sort of, I was quite comfortable with pointers and a lot of the concepts, but it'd just be stuff in Xcode and like these oh, yeah. weird errors and I still haven't. I still don't quite know where to go for those sort of problems. Yeah, I mean, always. I think the the hard part for learning any language is trying to figure out what are the right questions to ask. Yeah, yeah. You know, totally. and, and just how do you formulate a question? Yeah. But but typically the things that you see other people see, you know, yeah. that that's like the thing I always try to convince my students is that you are not alone. Everybody has those weird <laughs> errors. And there are people that understand those errors really well. Yeah. You know? So p- part of it is trying to be able to formulate the right question about what you're doing, yeah. what you want to do, and then you know, 
I mean, like, asking questions and answering questions is, like, the heart of all these projects. Yeah, sure. Sure. So, let's talk about you. Yeah. Let's talk about me already. What do you do with the rest of your time? So, you teach at Parsons. Yeah, I teach at Parsons, and, uh, you know, I work as an artist and do... um, do all kinds of projects and you know like some commercial work and some non-commercial work and always try to do things that um, you know are scratching an itch and yeah. for me the itch is always uh, has to do with gesture kind of how we communicate the nature of communication I really like to build weird drawing tools I love um, I as a as an early coder as when I got into programming I just started building re- extremely weird sh- <laughs> and, and like I would build weird shit and I would love to play with it yeah. and then that's all I do professionally it's like just try to build weird stuff and play with it like as a performance or invite other people to play with it as a installation so if we were to if we were to look you up on the internet and find some some projects about you what are the most what are the projects that you're most proud of over yeah. the last few years that, yeah, that yeah. Are best represent what you do yeah so I think the you know the projects are, for me are always about drawing so I have a project yeah. called Drawn which is like a, an earlier project in my career which is where I'm on stage painting with ink and I can yeah. manipulate the painting live that's, that's what you, you demoed at uh, the IO festival yeah I did yeah. that at IO and it was crazy to do it at IO because usually it's like you know, when you do a performance, you need, like, some sort of sound check, and you need yeah. to, you know, like, actually re- rehearse. Yeah, in a 15-minute setup. Or something. <laughs> it's a bit stressful. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, my I've talk was about times. my talk was about failure, so I was really, like, <laughs> no, I was, like, I win no matter what. If it's good, I win. If yeah. it's bad, I win. So, yeah, um, that's something I learned reasonably recently, is people seem to like it more when it goes wrong. Oh, yeah. And it's like, well, that's very liberating, isn't it? Oh, um, yeah. If you're having fun with it, like, yeah. they don't like it if you're if it's going wrong and you're... And you're just and panicking you're and flustered. sweating. Yeah. They don't like it. <laughs> so how did, that, how did that project work? So you just had a camera pointing at a piece of paper and you... Yeah, I had a camera pointing at a piece of paper, but there's some sort of tricks that I do in order to be able to you know, like paint something, remove the paper where the audience doesn't see it, you have looping video, you have some computer vision, sampling the ink, turning it into textures that you can manipulate. Was that done with open frameworks? Yes. It's quite old though, isn't it? Yeah, early early version of open frameworks. Yeah, Yeah. brilliant. Other drawing projects like iWriter, obviously like working with the paralyzed graffiti artist, building a tool to help him draw graffiti, again, using his eye movements. Yeah. and, and that's, a, that's a great project because there are systems like that, aren't they? Professional systems, but really super expensive. Yeah, they're very expensive. The commercial eye tracking systems, like $10,000, $15,000. Yeah. You know, they're not really tailored for the individual. That they're really, the software that's on them is general purpose communication software, like typing software. Yeah. And there's no, you know, graffiti software. There's no, <laughs> yeah. like, f- f- you know, funky software that's about who you are. Yeah. And, and so this was also, I think that making this point, which is, you know, we can build tools for individuals, that we can build software for individuals, that we can build things which are unique and custom and, and sort of, you know, not, sort of not the general software, not like, you know, Microsoft Word or Photoshop or whatever, which is for lots of people, but software that's for individuals is I think really crucial. Sure. 
the IQ font project, which was drawing, you know, using a car to draw a typeface. Oh yeah, I saw that. That was you know, fun. Tracking, tracking the car from above. I might just use that font now for everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. Why <laughs> yeah. Not? I'll it's, put it on my blog. It's yeah. The font is fun. <laughs> and it's and it's got a really nice style to it. Yeah. So. Cool. So what's yeah. what's coming up? Yeah. So I'm working on something for the Olympics, which was a large, a uh, really large-scale commission to create a project on Hadrian's Wall, which is this wall that goes across the country. It's 73 miles long. And they've commissioned us to set up weather balloons that are running along the length of the wall, which light up and communicate with each other and send messages. And we're going to invite the audience to also participate and send messages along the wall. And the, the main idea is to imagine the wall not as a border. I mean, this was a border. This was yeah. the border of the Roman Empire. But imagine the wall as a as a means of communication, of connecting, yeah. as a as a means of connecting people. Yeah, it sounds crazy. It sounds really ambitious. It's really ambitious. I think if we were setting it up in a garage, it would be very easy. <laughs> but actually, having it, you know, go across such a long distance is that's really incredible. Yeah. And that I think this we're going to see lots of projects like this, which is the intersection of what we do, which is, you know, creating these real-time systems and things like land art and, you know, yeah. you know that, that's, that, that's strange. I don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's it. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks yeah, very thank much. You. Thank you. I never know what to say after the interviews. Yeah, it's just like that, that awkwardness. Okay. What we should do is just put in a sound effect and then go to another section. That's what other podcasts would do. Yeah. Explain. You don't it. have that awkward segue. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it goes creative coding podcast. Yeah, like that. Done. That's it. Okay. Cool. Good. So what a great interview. Let's get on with the next section, which is <laughs> let's deal with some of these questions that we've been claiming we're going to deal with. Oh yeah, have we got some questions. Yeah. Well, we had some questions last time as well, didn't we? Okay. I I don't know where they are, but let's go. Here's go one for from it. Steve Gardner. It says, okay. you asked us to ask you questions, so here's mine. Like a lot of people, <laughs> I originally got into code through Flash. I originally wanted to be an animator, and Flash was one of the best tools to do that. But it quickly transpired, I don't have anywhere near enough patience to animate frame by frame, and I did find it easy enough to code. Is this a question or just a life story? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm interested in what you guys think is the equivalent entry to creative code these days, one where people yeah. pick up code almost by mistake. Yeah. Great question. You know, yeah, it's a really good question, isn't it? And, and I think Flash was definitely that thing that created the most accidental coders ever, didn't it? It really did, yeah. I think JavaScript has a similar kind of thing in that people start out designing web pages and then they learn a bit of JavaScript to solve a few problems. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite the same though, way. is it? I mean, and it's a similar about, thing. What? Yeah, it's definitely similar. It's a similar thing, but what I would say the difference is, is it's a different kind of person. It's not people who are doing animated stuff, really. Yeah. It's more just people who are designing web pages. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, the, things, never, the things you learn tend to be not to do something that's creative visually. It's more just to maybe solve a bug or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think there's, not, there's never been anything quite like Flash since then. And, and what I mean by that is... It's, it's an application for artists and animators, you know, that's what it started off as. And it was mm. only sort of 
by accident that people found the script and started experimenting with it and started stretching it and started sharing it on the internet. That's when, you know, in those in those heady days in the, around the turn of the millennium, when Flash stuff was just going mental and there's so much creative work around and so many accidental coders being made out of artists. Mm. I mean, I think these days you're less likely to become a coder by accident, but maybe because there's a bit more... Um, bit more kind of profile about it a bit more publicity about coding maybe it's mm-hmm. maybe more people are actually trying to code um and in fact this sort of leads into the, what the khan academy have, are doing have you seen yeah the khan academy they just launched a computer science course this week which is based on processing.js but it's essentially it's what i've been wanting for a long time it's it's kind of like code academy but it's a well in my mind it's better because it teaches visual programming it's visual which is, yeah which is how i do the creative of JS for non-coders um, but also it's it's got an editor it's got an output but it's also got uh, voiceover so you can listen to the teacher talking oh, right. and then you can see what they're typing and then you can see the effects of it and then you can edit it for yourself so it's exactly the system that I've been wanting for a long long time and I think that's a brilliant way to learn creative code yeah that's awesome I'm gonna because I, I did uh, Code Academy like with my students as like I've got them to do as a bit of homework mm. last year and I guess I'll add I'll do I'll keep Code Academy but also get them to do the calm thing as well I, mean, I think Code Academy is, is cool because it's step by step and it's very friendly, but I do think that some of the things that it gets you to do early on are quite arbitrary. And I, mm. I was certainly left asking, <laughs> why am I doing this? You know, it wasn't very well to my mind. Well, just because I love visual stuff, I think it's a really good way to learn. So I think that's always going to be. I, I think you have to learn the two things in tandem. I think you need to learn, you need to do visual stuff, but you also need to learn like what an array is, say, in the most boring way as well i don't know when i teach people what an array is i just keep an array of mouse pointers positions and it makes a really cool looking trail that shrinks from your mouse like a weird wiggly <laughs> worm thing sure so, but then but then they might then your students i'm just playing devil's advocate to a point here yeah, but that's cool maybe then your students might not understand that an array can be lot can do lots of things and they might just see it as a mouse pointer holder <laughs> and they might not so... appreciate it as a multi-purpose thing right i don't know i mean but you I mean, see what whatever I mean, example you show with an array yeah they're just gonna you know there's a chance they'll be like oh an array is for storing that specific thing like with strings or you know i mean i, th- I think that's always yeah but like that's, that's why i like to have like take 10 minutes and just go this is an array you can put yeah. any kind of information in it this is what it does in an without any examples or just or with a sure. few different examples yeah i think it goes without saying that it requires a bit of description at the same time I find when I'm teaching non-coders, though, that that stuff doesn't really sink in as much as the stuff that where they have a visual response and that sort of... Sure. You know, hopefully the yeah, visual examples sort of back up yeah. the, the sort of conceptual stuff that they're doing with code. Sure. But I guess the thing is, I don't really teach non-coders. I teach future coders. I teach people who, even though they can't code, are learning to be programmers. Yeah. Which is slightly different than teaching, say, like artists who want to play around or whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah, you see what cool. I mean? So ne- yeah. yeah. Have we got okay, another so, question? Um, oh, just on, in terms of that one, I also want yeah. to big up um, Scratch. I think Scratch is awesome. Oh, yeah. Um, Scratch is awesome. I love it. And that's what um, Code Club are teaching as well. Have we mentioned Code Club? Have you heard of Briefly. Code Club? Yeah. Well, it's worth another mention, I think. They're awesome. They're just starting a load of after-school coding clubs. 
It's like complete yeah. voluntary organisation. It's set up by my friends Claire and Linda, um, and they seem to be getting loads of publicity, and, and it seems to really have taken off. So they had an amazing um, promo video, which had like about everyone yeah. famous on the internet in it. Yeah, it was amazing. Cool. Should we do the next question? Is there more questions? Oh, I this just wanted to say some more answers podcast. to this question as well. Okay. <laughs> I like this question. Uh, in terms of learning code by accident, etc. jQuery is probably one way where people start to see things move about yeah. and be more interesting. And that's maybe where web designers might start to get more interested in things like animation. Um, sure. And another one is Flash still, but things like Flash Punk and Flixel, where people are coming into it from the point of view of like, I just want something that's going to get a game going as quickly as possible sure. without kind of starting from scratch if that makes sense. For gaming, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because it's like, I mean, the way I teach my students, like, Flash games is we start from no lines of code and we, like, build up Pong and then we build up Breakout and stuff. But yeah. you another way to do it is you come in from, like, here's an engine like Flixel and Flashpunk and you start, mm. the first thing you do is extend, like, the, the game object to make, like, a character or something like that. It's just a different way of coming at it. Yeah. But it does work for some people, I think, so. Cool. Next question? Yes. Uh... Okay, that's someone from there. I know there was some on Twitter as well. Did you favourite them or anything or not? Oh, I don't know. No idea. <laughs> oh, someone's asking what I think about Stencil, which is like Scratch, oh, yeah. but lets you make Flash games. We talked about it once, didn't we? I think we talked podcast. about it before. What I think about it is that it's a great idea, but I prefer Scratch. I think if you're just getting started, Scratch is just easy, so much easier to use than Stencil. Yeah. Okay, uh, good answer. <laughs> I think the rest of the questions must be... Um, must have been on well, Twitter. we'll have a look. <laughs> that's annoying. Oh, and that's my well, we could ask for some more questions. Um, hold on, my doorbell's right. I better go and answer that. Um, should we just wrap it up? Yes. Because I've got to go. I've got some more projects anyway. coming. Yes, we are. Okay. Just d- d- come to my fireworks event on the 2nd of September, day before Reasons to be Creative. That's really important. I'm also doing an <laughs> installation at the Dublin Science Gallery. I'll talk more about that later. That's really cool. And I'm also possibly doing a massive 60,000 people Pixel Phones project at the end of September. More about that on cool. the next episode. Yeah. So see you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. All right. Go get your dog.